As a free, not-for-profit service, Cradio requires the support of people like you to help keep us going in our mission. To donate, visit cradio.org.au slash donate. Cradio. St. Thomas Aquinas, an introduction. A talk by Father Thomas Azzi at the Aquinas Symposium 2019. So we might begin with the prayer of St. Thomas for students. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Together. Creator of all things, true source of light and wisdom, origin of all being, graciously let a ray of your light penetrate the darkness of my understanding. Take from me the double darkness in which I have been born, that of sin and ignorance. Give me a sharp understanding, a retentive memory, ability to grasp things correctly and fundamentally. Grant me the talent of being exact in my explanations and the ability to express myself with thoroughness and charm. Point out the beginning, direct the progress, and help in the completion. Grant this through Christ our Lord. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we live in a world which is very different from the world of Thomas Aquinas. So what relevance does he have to our modern way of life? Well, what do we have in our modern way of life? We've got fast transport, fast communication, which has meant that our world has become increasingly small in size. We're able to traverse uh, from country to country in a matter of hours. Back in Aquinas' day, they would have taken months on foot. And so we live in a highly connected and globalized world. And this has meant that we're exposed more and more to the diversity of thought around the world. Even here in Australia, one of the most multicultural countries in the world. So we take pride in the diversity of our modern multicultural way of life. But increasingly, our diversity is being given over to division. So rather than looking at the other as one in, in whom we can enter into dialogue, beginning off with common ground, uh, we increasingly look on the other as, as someone uh, foreign to our way of thinking. And I think there are two extremes uh, to this way of thought. On the one hand, we have a radical uh, secular uh, scientism, which says that you can only believe in what you can see, what you can observe, what you can experiment with. So this way of understanding is typified by people like Richard Dawkins and the physicist Lawrence Krauss, who would say that you should not believe in anything which you cannot observe through science. So science alone is the way forward. Place your faith in science and you will find truth and happiness. What's the other extreme? The other extreme is a radical fideism. A radical belief in the faith of a particular 
divine revelation, irrespective of what science may tell us about reality. And so this is exemplified by people like uh, Isis, who believe in a divine revelation of truth in the Quran, and they would say that that is the only source of truth worth believing in. Everything else must be subjected to that understanding of truth. And so this is a radical fideism, faith alone. So we have these two extremes. Science alone will lead you to happiness. Faith alone will lead you to truth. Now I think in our contemporary, secular, liberal, Western world, there is gradually a third way uh, developing, and in fact has already developed. It's not faith alone, not science alone, but you alone. You are the only one who can determine what is true for you, what is reality for you. No one can tell you what is truth. The churches don't know it. Scientists get it wrong. The Big Bang is only a theory that was developed a couple of hundred, less than a hundred years ago. So, science can get it wrong, faith can get it wrong. So, it's only you alone who have to navigate this world and arrive at your own truth. And nothing can shackle your freedom, not even your own body, your own biology. And so here we see uh, the ideological underpinnings of this modern gender ideology. If you identify with a particular gender, if you identify with a particular way of life, then that is true for you. And no one, not even the scientists, can tell you who you are. Now, Aquinas would enter here and say, hold on, it's not an either-or, it's a both-and. You can have it all. It's not religion v. science, it's religion and science. Faith and reason. Pope John Paul II compares these two as like wings upon which the soul rises to the contemplation of truth. And so in his encyclical Fides et Ratio, Pope John Paul II says, Thomas recognised that nature, philosophy's proper concern, could contribute to the understanding of divine revelation. Faith, therefore, has no fear of reason, but seeks it out and has trust in it. Just as grace builds on nature and brings it to fulfilment, so faith builds upon and perfects reason. So the great genius of Aquinas is that he was able to stand on the shoulders of giants that went before him in the areas of, of philosophy and of theology 
and he was able to look out and observe the beauty of reality. And so the church honors him as the common doctor of the church. He is able to be consulted on every area of theology. He's a patron saint of Catholic universities, colleges, and schools. And so even though he lived 800 years ago, uh, we very much need his way of understanding today. So just a brief bio biographical sketch of his life. Uh, he was born in 1224 in Rocca Seca, halfway between Rome and Naples. He only lived for 50 years, and yet he was able to accomplish so much. He was born into nobility. His father, uh, Landolf, was a Count of Aquino. Theodora, his mother, was a Countess of Tiano. At the age of five, he was sent to the local Benedictine monastery of Monte Cassino, where his studies began. And this was quite common at that time, uh, to entrust uh, your children to these monastic schools, uh, because they were, if you like, the Catholic primary schools of their day. And even at an early age, his teachers recognized uh, his inquisitive nature. He would often ask his teachers, what is God? What is God? And this is at age five, when most children are, are asking, what is PlayStation? At about 1236, the monastery became a battle site, and so his family transferred Thomas over to the University of Naples to begin his university education. And here he came into contact with a new way of life, uh, the mendicant way of life of the friars, in particular the Dominicans on campus. So who are these mendicants, this new way of life in the church developing around the time of St. Francis of Assisi and St. Dominic? Well, think of them as a cross between a monk and a parish priest. So for the first thousand years of the church's history, if you discern a religious vocation, you shut yourself off in a monastery and became a monk or a nun. If you discerned an active vocation, you would uh, uh, then go on and become a pastor or a parish priest. And this reflected society. Society was highly agrarian. People made their living from farming the land. And so religious life reflected that in these monasteries, which would own vast tracts of land, and the monks would make a living uh, through farming the land uh, in between their choral uh, prayers. Just before the time of Thomas Aquinas, there was a radical uh, shift an economic and demographic shift in medieval Europe, owing to the, the rise of the merchants. The merchants were those who made a living not by farming the land, but by buying and selling. And so with the opening up of the spice routes to the Far East and through navigation, people began to make a living through trade, through buying and selling. And so here we have uh, the sort of the embryonic beginnings of the retail industry. 
Now, if you were a merchant, you did not need to own vast tracts of land out in the rural areas. All you needed was a small shop in a port or a city. And so there began to be a, a shift of the uh, medieval U European population away from the rural townships into these cities. Now the children of these merchants had to be educated. Uh, the poor of these towns and cities had to be taken care of. And so religious life began to uh, reflect this change in the mission of the church. And so here we have the rise of people like uh, Francis of Assisi and St. Dominic, uh, who discerned the religious vocation not to be out in a monastery, but to be in the midst of uh, towns and cities, uh, serving and ministering to the people of these towns and cities. And so they would live not in monasteries, but in friaries and priories, that would maintain certain monastic elements of the Benedictine way of life, uh, but they would also have an active pastoral element to their way of life. Now, around this time, the medieval university was developing, uh, right back, going right back to the time of Charlemagne, who called for a renaissance in Europe uh, through the founding of these cathedral schools in the main cities. A lot of these schools were now developing into uh, the universities we know today. The University of Naples, Paris, Aberdeen, Oxford, Cambridge. And so it was at university that Thomas Aquinas came into contact with this new way of life, uh, the way of the friar. Now, his parents, being of the noble class, uh, wanted more of Thomas's life. They wanted him to become an abbot in a monastery and so exercise a great degree of power. And so determined were they to sway uh, his way of life that uh, his mother had his brothers kidnap Thomas and imprison him in a tower for two years. And so determined were they to sway his vocation that they sent in a prostitute uh, to tempt Aquinas. And in response, he went for the nearest uh, torch and he chased her out. <laughs> then he knelt down and prayed for chastity and it said that two angels appeared and they girded him with a cord or a cincture of purity. And so from that time onwards, uh, he never felt the temptation uh, to sin against chastity ever again. And we still honour this particular episode in the life of Aquinas through the Angelic Warfare Confraternity. It's a confraternity entrusted by the church to the Dominicans it's still going today. If you'd like more information about that, uh, Father James Baxter, who will be giving the talk this afternoon, uh, he is the promoter of confraternities, and so he'll be able to give you more information about the Angelic Warfare Confraternity, which takes on uh, this particular aspect 
of Thomas's prayer for chastity. And so it's, it's very powerful if you're struggling in that area. So eventually his mother gave up after two years and they allowed him to be released. And then he went on and finished his studies. Now, what did he study? So, very importantly, he studied what we know as the classic liberal arts education. Every student, irrespective of what they ended up doing uh, for uh, their careers, would begin off with this trivium, this threefold way of grammar, logic, and rhetoric. So you would learn a language, you would learn the, uh, the principles of logical reasoning, and then you would learn how to expound and present your own way of thinking uh, through dialogue and debate. So think of the trivium as the, the human equivalent of, of input, processing, and output. Grammar provides you the information, logic processes the information, and then rhetoric allows you to present the information in a coherent and persuasive way. Then they moved on to study the applied sciences of the quadrivium, arithmetic, geometry, music, astronomy. And then if they discerned a calling to the practical arts, they would study either medicine, law, or architecture. If they discern a vocation to the theoretical arts, they would then go on to study philosophy and theology. Now, if you've ever picked up uh, the writings of Aquinas and tried to read one of his articles, uh, you may have come, up, come away uh, with a bit of PTSD. Um, he is very dry, uh, very abstract, and some of the concepts he uses we don't use anymore today. So the important thing to realize is that he was writing to people who had this foundational learning in the liberal arts. He wasn't writing to, to beginners. And so it's important to remember that. So if you are interested in reading Aquinas, I recommend that you start off with a commentary on his writings first before diving in uh, to read Thomas himself. He studied under St. Albert the Great, uh, the great German Dominican, and Albert was uh, very big on the importance of, of science. In fact, he's the patron saint of the natural sciences. He was one of the first to begin incorporating Aristotle, the great uh, Greek philosopher, back into medieval theological thought. And so Albert was uh, one of the teachers of Aquinas. Unlike Aquinas, Albert did accept to become a bishop. Uh, they wanted to make Aquinas himself a, the Archbishop of Naples, uh, but he begged uh, and refused. 
whereas Albert gave in and became the, the Bishop of Cologne in Germany. Uh, but after two years, he threw in the towel and resigned. So uh, when Archbishop Fisher was installed as the Archbishop of Sydney, uh, he had a few devotional cards put out. And one of, one of them was of St. Antoninus of Florence, another uh, Dominican bishop, the Archbishop of Florence, and Antoninus did not resign. So, <laughs> so Albert could see the genius of Aquinas. Even though he was a very quiet man, he had a very taciturn temperament, and some people confused his humility for uh, ignorance. And so his fellow students would often make fun of him, uh, teasing him as the dumb ox. Albert could see the genius of Aquinas, and so he declared, we may call him the dumb ox, but one day he will emit such a bellowing that his teaching will be heard throughout the world. In 1245, Albert was sent to Paris and Thomas followed him. In 1248, they returned to Cologne and Thomas began to teach as a bachelor. He was ordained probably around 1250 to the priesthood. And from that time on, he began a career as a, uh, a teacher in the Dominican Studium in Paris at 1251. In 1257, he was awarded the doctorate in theology uh, together with his fellow uh, religious, the great Franciscan Saint Bonaventure. Uh, see, Franciscans and Dominicans do get along sometimes. <laughs> so even though they differed radically in their, their thought, uh, Bonaventure was highly platonic uh, Aquinas not so much in his um, theology. Uh, they were very close friends. So from this time, Aquinas' whole life can be summed up in a few words. Praying, preaching, teaching, writing, and traveling. And as I said, so devoted was he to these that he begged to be excused from becoming the Archbishop of Naples, which Clement IV had appointed him in 1265. Some say that if he had accepted that appointment, we may never have had the, the Summa Theologica, his most famous work. So although he lived only around 50 years of age, uh, he provided us with so much. Over 60 works on philosophy, theology, scripture, apologetics. And very importantly, we need to remember that in those days, there, were, there was no Google search. They had to remember everything. And this is exemplified by Aquinas's Catena Aurea, otherwise known as the Golden Chain. Now, this was an anthology of patristic commentaries on the Gospels. So what Aquinas did is he collected the commentaries of the early church fathers and he 
arrange those so as to provide a running commentary on the four Gospels. So it's obviously not the most original work of Aquinas in terms of thinking, uh, but it does demonstrate his prodigious memory, that he was able to recall what St. Anselm, what St. Augustine, what St. Gregory of Nyssa had said on this particular verse of the Gospel of John. But no doubt he's most remembered for his great Summer of Theology. Now there's a principle that the more intelligent you are, the fewer the ideas you require to understand a particular point. You see, if any of you are teachers, you'll know that uh, you've got students in your class of differing uh, brightness. And so those who are very bright readily understand what you're trying to teach. And you don't need to provide many examples. Whereas those who are not so bright, you need to uh, provide many illustrations and examples, more ideas to grasp the same concept. And so Aquinas, uh, being so bright, he could encapsulate all of theology in three ideas. And so his Summa is divided into three parts. The first part looks at God and everything that proceeds from God, creation, the exitus. And then part two looks at Creation's return to God, the Reditus. First of all, creation's return to God through its own devices, through our own uh, way of thinking, our reasoning. Uh, here he looks at uh, morals and ethics and virtue. Part three is creation's return to God not so much through our, through our own devices, but through God becoming one of us to lead us back to himself. And so part three looks at the incarnation, uh, the sacraments. So even though the, the Summa itself is comprised of hundreds and hundreds of articles, it can be summed up in those three ideas. Now, if you open up the Summa, you'll find these articles. And so Thomas writes in the form of a medieval disputation or dialogue, whereby, first of all, he presents the question, then, like a good uh, theologian, like a good counsellor, uh, he listens to the objections, then he provides evidence through the people who have gone before him, through the scriptures, through St. Augustine in particular, in the area of theology, Aristotle in the area of philosophy. And then he provides his own reasoning and response before addressing the objections directly. So if, you want a f if you'd like a few tips about how to go about reading these articles, 
I'd suggest you start off by reading the first sentence of the first objection. So in this particular example, the question is whether the Blessed Virgin should be called the Mother of God. If you read the first sentence of the first objection, that will give you the wrong answer. It would seem that the Blessed Virgin should not be called the Mother of God. And then stop there. And then jump to, on the contrary, where he provides the evidence justifying why we should call the Blessed Virgin the Mother of God. And then he provides his own response. And then you can jump back to objection one and then jump forward to the reply to objection one, objection two, reply to objection two, and so forth. I think in this way it it's makes it easier to, to grasp uh, what Aquinas is trying to say because by the time you, you read the objections that come to objection number seven and you then go through the, the I respond and then you move forward to the reply to objection one, you forgot what the objection one is. So in the remaining time uh, that we have for this first session, I'd just like to give you a bit of a bird's eye overview of Aquinas's main contributions uh, to Christian theology. So first of all, he looks at God and how we know that God exists. And so here we find his famous five ways to the existence of God, uh, which I'm probably probably familiar with, or at least heard of. Now it's very important to, to grasp what Aquinas is trying to arrive at in these five ways. He's not trying to arrive at the Holy Trinity, Father, Son and Holy Spirit. He's not even trying to arrive at monotheism, strictly speaking, at this stage. This is what uh, Aquinas' opponents um, in today's day and age don't really understand about the five ways. The five ways are really premised on two ideas. First of all, that something cannot come from nothing. Now, some physicists have tried to argue that actually, if you look at the uh, reality at the subatomic level, in the area of quantum physics, we can observe that there are particles which come in and out of existence spontaneously out of nothing. And so they try to argue that actually something can come out of nothing. And in fact, uh, Lawrence Krauss has written an entire book about this, A Universe from Nothing. Now, what they understand to be nothing is not nothing, it's something. (laughs) (laughs) Their understanding of nothing is a quantum vacuum. It's about as close as you can come to absolutely nothing, but it's still something in in the form of empty space. Whereas what Aquinas understands by nothing is the philosophical understanding of nothing as as absolute potency. It is just absolutely nothing. 
And so we say that either you're going to hold that the universe or the multiverse has always been, or that it must have had a cause. Those are really the only two options that you can take. Because we know that from the Big Bang theory that our current universe hasn't always been. So either before the Big Bang there was a big crunch of a prior universe, or we're simply uh, one of a number of universes, a multiverse. And either you, you hypothesize that they've always been, and we're simply uh, a bubble in, in the Big Bang and the Big Crunch. Or you must say that there is at least one being that is sufficient. There is one being whose causality is itself uncaused. Now, do we know that that we we are the only universe in existence in the material world? Do we know that? No, we don't. And so even the, the theory that we are one of a number of universes is itself a theory. Now, it may be right. And then you have to ask, has the multiverse always been? Is the universe itself that being which is uncaused? Is the multiverse that being which we should give the label God? And here we start to get into the more, more of a Hindu understanding of the universe. That the being we give the label God as a transcendent, eternal, infinite being responsible for everything that is, they would say, why give that to a being outside the universe? Why don't you just give it to the universe itself? And I think this is why philosophers like David Hume had such a fascination with uh, the Eastern way of thought. So either you say that the universe itself is to be given the label God, or that there is at least one being outside the universe, which is a Christian understanding. Now, we don't have time to go further in that area, uh, but we can uh, consider it, if you like, uh, later on. The other principle that Aquinas points to in these five ways, particularly in the fifth way, is the observance of order in the universe, which reasonably presupposes an intelligence. So if you have order, either you're going to say that the order comes about through an intelligence, or you hypothesize that it comes, around, comes about by chance, albeit a very slim chance, but the order we see in the universe is simply 
uh, a random series of events which have happened by uh, chance, no matter how remote. So this is where we get into evolution and the origins of life and the fact that we still have not observed a life originating from non-living matter in and of itself. So after looking at God and some of the properties of God, Aquinas then goes on to look at beings which emanate from God by way of creation. And he looks at the hierarchy of creation. He's known as the angelic doctor because of the de degree of detail he went into uh, the angelic beings. And we might ask ourselves, how does he know so much about the angels? After all, we, we can't experiment, we can't see them. Well, he's basically going on what scripture has revealed, but also what we can work out as fitting from our observance of humanity, of the material world, and our reasoning about God. And so if you reason that God reasonably does exist, and obviously we exist, unless, you know, we're in the matrix, then he, he argues that it's fitting that we have a class of beings in between. An uncreated spirit and a created human nature of body and spirit. So it's reasonable to argue that there are these created pure spirits, the angels. And then he goes on to say that the angels are uh, are brilliant, are very bright, that each angel is so bright that he doesn't need to work the things out like we do discursively from step to step to arrive at a conclusion. Rather, the angels can see things in one instant, uh, like knowing the answers at the back of the book. Uh, that's how the angels know, know stuff. And so being so bright, the decisions they make are permanent. They have no reason to change their minds because their minds are made up from the first instant or the, the instant immediately after their creation. And so the choice they make to either love God above all things or love themselves above all things is permanent. And so, so this is why we have uh, the angels who made the right choice, and the demons who made the wrong choice. And then he looks at human nature. What does it mean to be human? And then he looks at animals, plants, and non-living matter. Very importantly, he adopts the definition of personhood uh, given to us by Boethius of an individual substance of a rational nature. See, what is a person? You're a human person. Uh, is a piano a person? Is an angel a person? What makes a person a person? Only persons have rights. Do animals have rights? 
So this is where he looks at the importance of abstract thought, of creativity, and of the capacity for freedom and love as what constitute uh, these moral agents we call persons. And then he looks at creation's return to God. Now, what do we mean by return? Where are, where are we returning to? What were we made for? What's the, the meaning of life? What's the purpose of it all? And Aquinas would say it's happiness. But where do we find happiness concretely? And he argues that there are really only five objects where we look for happiness. Wealth, pleasure, power, fame, or God. Every decision we make falls into one of those categories. And now the happiness we are made for, as St. Augustine alludes to in his famous prayer, is a happiness that endures, that is without limit. And so only an unlimited being can provide that happiness. So how do we arrive at that happiness? Well, this is where virtue comes in. See, for Aquinas, human life is not a matter of following a rule book. Human life is about training to become the perfect being that you can be. Why do you Catholics have so many rules and laws? Look at Canon Law, Canon 935. Why do we have so many laws? Are there any tax lawyers among us? <laughs> you need about two trolleys to roll in the tax act. Is human happiness achieved by simply reading a rule book and following the rules? Aquinas would say no, that's simply the, a sideshow. The perfection of human being is attained through training, in particular through uh, the development of good habits to overcome the bad habits that we have grown up with, uh, owing to a combination of nature and nurture. So Aquinas looks at uh, the virtues as a way we can arrive at human happiness. He looks at the, the moral virtues of prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. How do you develop these virtues? How do you learn a language? How do you become a great tennis player? Practice, repetition. How do you break a bad habit? You've got to stop repeating it. <laughs> now, we are called to a happiness which is not purely a human happiness, but is in fact a divine happiness. We are called to see God face to face. 
So we have a divine end. And yet, the cardinal virtues offer us purely human means to arrive at a divine end. So how do we arrive at this divine end? Well, we need God to raise us up and give us a share in the divine nature. How do you teach your dog to, uh, Esperanto? Well, you can't unless you give that dog uh, a human nature. So how does humanity arrive at the vision of God face to face? Well, we need a sharing God's own life, God's own nature. And this is where grace comes in, given to us at the moment of our baptism. At that point, we receive the theological virtues of faith, hope, and love, which pro provide us with a divine destination. How do we, how do we have the means to arrive at a divine destination? Well, this is where Aquinas very much emphasizes the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We all learn about the gifts of the Holy Spirit at confirmation, and then we forget about them. And yet for Aquinas, the gifts of the Holy Spirit are the pinnacle of the spiritual life. Because what they do is they allow you to operate, to act in a divine way, to achieve a divine end. So to give you an example, take the gift of counsel. In order to know what decision to make, we human beings have to reason from point A to point B to point C, like a mathematical deduction. Whereas the gift of counsel provides a shining light, which in one moment, one instant, gives us the answer at the back of the book. And so for Aquinas, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, given to us at baptism in rudimentary form as seeds, uh, need to grow and develop and reach their ultimate fruition. At which point, uh, we're ready to be canonized. Now, I talked about virtues being developed through repetition. Repetition of what? Repetition of human acts. Now, the acts that we, we exercise, that we do, have various elements. We have the, the mental element of our knowledge, our intention, the volitional element of our free will. Then there are the objects of the act, such as murder or theft. Then there are surrounding circumstances which either make the act worse or not so much. Now we obviously live in a, in a grey world. We, we make many decisions which are not black and white decisions. And so Aquinas provides us with this principle of a double effect to help us when we have a decision to make that has two effects, a good effect and a bad effect. And he says that you can go ahead and make that decision if the act itself is either good or morally neutral, if your intention is the good effect and not the bad effect, if the good effect is brought about not by means of the bad effect, 
And finally, if the good effect outweighs the bad effect. So to give you the classic example, uh, you are a train operator and you notice that there is a train that has uh, lost its brakes, it's careering out of control and it's about to ram into a group of 10 people. Now you as a controller have the option of diverting the train onto another set of tracks at the end of which there are only two people. So would you pull the lever and divert the train? So hands up if you would pull the lever. We have one, two, three, four, five, six. So Aquinas would say that you can pull the lever because Pulling the lever is itself a morally neutral act. Your intention is to save the life of ten, not to take the life of two. And the means by which you bring about that good effect is not directly through the taking of the life of two people. Now, those of you who said, yes, you can pull the lever, imagine if you're on a bridge and you could see the, the train coming. And beside you is your, your mate Fred, uh, who's had a few Big Macs. And you have the idea of either doing nothing and seeing the train careering into 10 people, or you can push your mate Fred <laughs> over the rail into the path of the oncoming train and given the gravitas of Fred uh, he would most likely uh, derail the train thereby saving the life of 10 people but unfortunately poor old Fred uh, has lost a few pounds so, so those of you who said yes you would pull the lever would you push Fred over? No. What's the difference? So what is a bad effect? It's the taking of poor old Fred's life. Now the good effect of saving 10 people is brought about through the taking of Fred's life when you push him over. And so Aquinas would say that's the difference. The good effect is produced by means of the bad effect. Now, th those are a few fairly um, unlikely scenarios, uh, but this principle does apply in many likely scenarios in today's world. Take the Terry Schiavo case, which I believe is being repeated with another fellow at the moment. Can you remove nutrition and hydration from a person in the comatose state who is never likely to recover? Can you stop the administration of nutrition and hydration? Can you turn off the life support of a person who is never likely to recover? Is that directly taking their life? 
can you perform a hysterectomy to remove the fallopian tube of a pregnant woman who's undergoing an ectopic pregnancy? Can you put out a, a new pharmaceutical drug which is bound to do a great deal of good but you know that there will be a few people who will suffer adverse side effects. So there are many practical applications to this principle given to us by St. Thomas and so it's a very useful principle uh, to help us uh, in today's day and age. Then finally in the third part he looks at God himself coming to lead us back through the Incarnation. He looks at how we can possibly say that God died for me on Good Friday. But hold on, in part one of the Summa you said that God is immortal, is spiritual. And yet here in part three of the Summa you're saying God died for me on Good Friday. So how, could, how can we say that God died for me? God suffered for me. How can we say that God sweated blood for me? And so this is where Aquinas looks at uh, what we understand by the Incarnation. And then he looks at the sacraments and in particular the Eucharist, which he describes as being the consummation of the spiritual life the greatest of the sacraments in which we receive Christ himself. And so following the, the treatise on the Eucharist, Aquinas, it's said, uh, experienced a mystical episode by which our Lord came to him on the cross, on the crucifix before him. And our Lord said to him, You have written well of me, Thomas. Ask anything you wish, and it, it shall be granted to you. And Aquinas' reply was, Nothing but you, Lord. Because if you have God, you've got everything. And so after this experience, Aquinas put his pen or feather down, and he stopped writing. The Summa remained unfinished because he said that what has been revealed to me has made everything that I have written appear to be like straw. And so the Summa remained unfinished. So from this point onwards, he began to prepare for death. On the way to a general council of the church in 1274, he collapsed and was taken to a nearby monastery where he was given the last rites. And after receiving viaticum, holy communion for the dying, he said the following. If in this world there be any knowledge of this sacrament stronger than that of faith, I wish now to use it in affirming that I firmly believe and know as certain that Jesus Christ, true God and true man, Son of God and Son of the Virgin Mary, is in this sacrament. 
I receive thee the price of my redemption, for whose love I have watched, studied, and labored. Thee have I preached, thee have I taught. Never have I said anything against thee. If anything was not well said, that is to be attributed to my ignorance. Neither do I wish to be so obstinate in my opinions, but if I have written anything erroneous concerning this sacrament or other matters, I submit all to the judgment and correction of the Holy Roman Church, in whose obedience I now pass from this life. So you could see his profound humility coming out in his dying moments. And so shortly after he died on the 7th of March, canonized by John the 22nd in 1323, and was declared a doctor of the church in 1567, patron saints of all Catholic universities, colleges, schools, and academics. So we see that the genius of Aquinas lay in the fact that he was able to stand on the shoulders of those who went before him, giants, people like Aristotle, St. Augustine, and we are the beneficiaries of the view he provided. And he's very much needed in our divided world today. So we ask him to pray for us. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. That was Father Thomas Azzi with St. Thomas Aquinas, an introduction. This talk was recorded at the 2019 Aquinas Symposium in Sydney, organised by the Dominican province of the Assumption. For more talks, interviews and shows, visit cradio.org.au.